if there were a supernatural creature that actually did appear on this planet and posed as a sort of savior of humanity to stop nuclear warfare and bring peace among all religions and science and so on, that the atheists themselves would have no way to distinguish between an actual supernatural being and an alien natural being. Welcome to the Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, relentlessly pursue truth and own the future. I'm your host, Lucas Scrobot, and today we are joined by Dr. Michael Keyes, who earned his PhD in the history of science from the University of Oklahoma. And he experienced some of the last historic moments behind the Berlin Wall as a Fulbright scholar in East Germany. He's an adjunct professor of history and philosophy of science at Biola University. And as a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute, he co-authors high school and college science curriculum. He is also the author of the book titled Unbelievable, Seven Myths About the History of Science and Religion. And really where he debunks these seven myths. Um, I read the book, incredible book, um, great read, my goodness. Uh, Dr. Michael Keyes, thank you so much for being on the show. Glad to join you, Lucas. I'm I'm really grateful that we get to sit down. And as I said, I I read your book, um, and you you brilliantly lay out um, kind of this deconstruction of really, which was a deconstructionist myth that that pitted science against religion. And and we're for sure going to get into that um, in the later part of the show. But what really draw drew my eye to your work. And to to the things that you talk about is something that is very much um, in pop culture wherever you go. You know, I'm here in the Middle East, in Dubai, and when I sit down and I have conversations with my friends, we are talking about UFOs. We are talking about whether aliens exist. Um, You know, my Muslim friends, I have these conversations with my my Christian friends. You know, they we bring these things up and we have these conversations, and um, it seems like most people uh, shy away from having this sort of conversation. Um, but you don't, and you approach it from a really interesting angle. So my my opening question is: Do you believe? Are you a believer? Do you believe in ET, extraterrestrial <laughs> intelligent life? Is it out there? Is the truth really yeah. out there? Right. Well, the truth is definitely out there. It's, the, it's just a matter of accessing it. And I think that there's nothing inherently anti-religious or anti-Christian or anti-many specific religions about the idea of life on other planets, um, extraterrestrial life or ET, as you call it. And um, I actually do a little bit of the history of ideas about alien life in my book and show that Uh, the Christian church had a variety of opinions about this subject and with a variety of strategies of reconciling it with the Bible. Obviously, there are a lot of things that might be true that might have occurred or that might be out there that the Bible doesn't talk about or some other religious book may not talk about because there are specific communicative goals that certain holy books have, and they are not intended to address every topic under the sun, right, Lucas? Right, right. That's true. They're not they're not intended to address every single 
topic underneath the sun. But and as you talk about in your book, there there seems to have been woven this new myth from that has has come from, and we're going to get into this. You know, this these archetypal narratives that frame the way that we view and live in the world that started from you know quote unquote science fiction that then became science that then has become backwritten into our textbooks. Um, but it still it still begs the question. I mean, there is there is so much out there. Um, conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. you know, could like could could aliens possibly be here already? Could they possibly exist from your kind of scientific, um, y- you know, viewpoint? Right. Well, what I do is in my book, Unbelievable, is I run through the calculations of how likely it is that there is um, intelli- intelligent or technological life on a nearby planet, that's extremely low. I mean, we have discovered about 4,000 extrasolar planets, that is planets um, that exist outside of our solar system. Mm. And, and the news will periodically say, well, Earth-like planet discovered. Well, if you look at the details, it's Earth-like in respect to, let's say, characteristic A and B, but not C, D, E, F, G, all of which are needed in order to have a planet that could support complex life. Uh, and potentially technological or intelligent life. Mm. So, so uh, following a, a Harvard astronomer that I cite in my book, I show that although we don't know, obviously no one knows whether ET exists somewhere out there, the likelihood of contact from ET is extremely low. And so, um, you know, when you compare that likelihood with more mundane explanations like uh, military technology that's still uh, classified, or or uh, electronic countermeasures, where the military of various countries can can make it look like an aircraft suddenly disappears or moves erratically when it's just a way to av- avoid being hit by a missile. You know, there's there's more mundane um, explanations for a lot of the so-called alien technology on Earth, and and so seen in the big picture of science, I'm a skeptic about these claims that we already that we've already been visited i think that it's very very unlikely so you mentioned you mentioned something about there's you know there's these i think you said 4000 different earth like planets that have been identified and in your book you write about the the ghz the galactic habitable zone habitable habitable, habitable zone, zone. Yeah. excuse me yeah, yeah. the galactic you, habitable zone morning, try to say that three times quickly when you wake up okay <laughs> <laughs> so and and you uh, don't you don't you don't have the time in the book to get into the detail of what right. all falls in it but i was i was fascinated to read that it's mm-hmm. not just well you need a planet that's close to a star it's actually dependent on where you are in the the galaxy that there's certain areas right. in the galaxy that you need a jupiter like um, size planet near you. Can you break down some of these things to really mm-hmm. help me understand how low of a probability it is just for there to be a planet that could meet Earth? Right. And by the way, the 4,000 planets we've discovered, um, most of them are wildly different than Earth and not even potentially a place for complex life. Some of them do have some of the characteristics of Earth, but anyway, 4,000 total, roughly. And the numbers obviously increase in each each month, but yeah, for a planet to be habitable—that is, for it to be able to c- support complex life—if there were an opportunity for the life to appear there, of course, mm. habitable doesn't mean inhabited. It just means the physical requirements. Right? Just could happen. Yeah, yeah. and um, 
so yeah, you, uh, the astronomers talk about the Goldilocks principle. You can't be too hot, too cold, you know, like this children's story. You can't be too close to the sun, too far away. So they're in order to have liquid water. And uh, there's many other traits as well, like where you are, not just in the solar system, but in a galaxy. If you're too uh, close to a spiral arm, where there's too many suns and supernovae exploding and things like that happening, there's it's very unlikely you would have complex life there. So what? So um, why why wouldn't we have complex? I was just really fa- like by that point, I was so yeah. fascinated that that it's not just Earth's place away from the sun, which is like oh yeah, you know, if we were on Mars or we were on Venus, um, but it's even like where we we're situated in the entire um, galaxy, entire right. Yeah, so we are situated between two spiral arms in our galaxy, and um, that's a good place for life. It's also a good place for discovery, by the way, because you can see uh, more of the universe that way. If you were inside a spiral arm, you would be largely ignorant of the rest of the universe. So it's, it's, it's interesting that our place in the galaxy is good not only for life, because it's not too much radiation or or it's good for life because of other things like the concentration of certain elements in that part of the galaxy. Uh, but it's also good for scientific discovery. Um, so it's almost like it's kind of rigged that um, the conditions that are important for life are also happen to be important for discovery, as if we were intended to discover, like some purpose, no. you know, like part of our purpose. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> so... So going off of that, so there mm-hmm. are just so few, so few places, and especially coming from this materialist worldview that is saying that everything evolved, you know, if you're going to hold, if you're going to hold that one truth that we happen by some evolutional miracle, which is ironic to even say, because according to them, nothing happens without cause, well, then how, how did this all happen? Um, right. But then the fact that it happened a second time on another planet somewhere with very where there's very low odds of that happening is just dismal in your in your account. Yeah, and uh, and the likelihood of contact with even if some aliens did exist, uh, in fact, on the basis of the idea that there's a God who made the universe, it's actually more likely that there could be life somewhere else because God could create life on another planet. But look, based on just what we know from science. Um, the their, the requirements for a habitable planet are so unlikely, given what we know from our survey of what we can detect from our vantage point from Earth, that um, uh, even though the universe is very, very big, the likelihood of extraterrestrial life is, is somewhat low, and the likelihood of contact is extremely low. So it's really the likelihood of contact with aliens that I focus on in the book, rather than the broader question of whether aliens exist or not. And you touched on that in the book, it, of how... You know, outside of that, those 4,000 planets that are near us that could have possible contact, that one, even if we had contact with them, to have a, a one-time communication would take a 100 generations. Is that right? It would take like a 1,000 years for one communication. And then you said on top of that, once you go outside of that zone, these stars are so far away and accelerating away from us that we would our, our signal would never reach them. Yeah, I mean, the universe is expanding and accelerating in, it, in its expansion. And so we're becoming more and more isolated from more and more of the universe as time ticks off. 
But uh, so that's one factor. But just the sheer distances of of the way the universe is at this moment, um, the likelihood of contact is is so extremely low. And so I figured this into the question of okay, so if there were the the appearance of something on Earth, some vastly intelligent creature. Is it alien intelligence, or is it, or is there some other explanation for that? I figure that into into that big debate, right? And and you talk about that, and and it's it's very fascinating the arguments that you make, and not the arguments that you make, but the arguments that the materialists and the naturalists are making, which is saying mm-hmm. that their technology, that this ET alien, whether it's whether it's mechanical or whether it is organic. Um, their technology would be so superior um, that it would appear as as if it was magic to us, which that leads me to my question. So uh, my my friend and a listener of this podcast, his name's El Tamash here in Dubai. He he found out that I was talking to you about extraterrestrial and he he freaked out. He's like, this is not a coincidence. You know, I have been diving deep into this for the last number of months. Um, specifically after that that video of that one TikTok Tic Tac um, UFO with, was spotted. So here is his question. It's actually three questions. Um, mm-hmm. First two are going to be coupled together, and then we'll hit that third question a little later. Later, here it is. First of all, Lucas, thank you for letting me ask some questions. The first one is, um, uh, what is your definition of gravity? Do we fully understand gravity? And um, what would happen if someone was able to control gravity? Second is, do you believe the Bob Lazar stories? And third is, uh, especially in this modern world, it always feels like religion and science have to be at odds with one another. Um, and I'm in, in history, uh, uh, it's not been the case. And in fact, uh, at some points of... Uh, you know, the, when new religion was there, uh, science was progressing at, at, at incredible rates. Um, so what's the issue in the modern age? Why can't uh, religion and science just coexist in harmony? So I want to hit those, those first two questions kind of paired together. Um, you know, on Joe Rogan's podcast, he's had multiple people, this uh, Bob Lazar, um, talking about these um, anti-gravity machines um, isotope 111 um, or element or element 115, I believe, which is fascinating en- enough. It's written into so much science fiction that you've even referenced in your work. But he's saying that there are these spaceships um, near Area 51 that they have these anti-gravity machines. Um, and he makes the, the very same argument that you're saying that people are making in your book which is that, um, you know, it is as if it appears to be this technology is magic, but that's just because, you know, if we had thrown this back into the Victorian area, if we threw like a a nuclear bomb into the Victorian area, we'd be like, well, that's magic. So how does, how does gravity, how does that work? And do you believe kind of these conspiracy theory UFO stories of, of Bob Lazar? Yeah, well, one of my uh, expertises is in the philosophy of science, not just the history of science. And I've written an essay in a leading journal that uh, called Sintiza, 
It's a German name for synthesis. And you can find this essay by Googling my last name, Keys, K-E-A-S, which, by the way, Lucas, almost looks like chaos, K-E-A-S, chaos. I like uh, that. Uh, Keys, virtues. And if you Google Keys, virtues, K-E-A-S, you'll find this essay where I look at 12 traits of reputable theories. And I focus on the history of science, the scientific theories that have that are really well established, you know, like um, like well, gravity. Um, Newton's view of gravity has been updated through Einstein, and we now understand gravity to have to do with the way um, the way space itself is curved because of uh, the presence of a massive object, and so like the sun causes a uh, curvature of space, a local curvature of space that, that explains how things move around the sun and, and how light is bent when it comes by the sun. So could we control gravity? Well, that's technology, of course, technology based on scientific knowledge. I think there may be ways in which we could do that, but um, a lot of these ideas uh, start out as science fiction and uh, people imagine, you know, at least, I mean, you know, when you're thinking creatively about, well, from basic scientific ideas, could we imagine a future technology that could overcome gravity or, or work with gravity in certain really cool ways? And of course, we can imagine this. And sometimes science fiction becomes later scientific fact, but of course, most of the time it doesn't. And so one thing that technology can never do, Lucas, is technology can never overcome natural laws. As long as the universe continues to run by a certain set of consistent rules, which scientists discover, technology can never overcome that. And so when you have world-renowned atheist Richard Dawkins saying there's probably alien civilizations superhuman to being godlike that exceed what even theologians think of when they think of God. Yeah. Uh, that's just, that's like science fiction. That's not really science. To, to, to think that you could have this creature appear on the earth and suddenly, you know, you know, like have its head cut off and then have it put back on and suddenly it lives and, you know, stuff like that. It's way beyond plausible medical science or whatever, uh, things that look like miracles when, you know, the atheists are going to say, it's just, it's just technology, science-based technology by some, some civilization that's had billions of years longer to evolve than us. Um, but they really have, uh, according to their own atheist literature, no way of distinguishing anymore between the natural and the supernatural because they have imaginatively, ex um, extrapolated into uh, future into sort of a science fiction frame of mind but calling it science and saying that well uh sure if you put a cell phone in the middle ages they might think it's supernatural but but um when when it comes to um, the way that they make the argument if there were a supernatural creature that actually did appear on this planet and posed as a sort of savior of humanity to stop nuclear warfare and bring peace among all religions and science and so on, that the atheists themselves would have no way to distinguish between an actual supernatural being and an alien natural being. And so I think, I've, and that's what I refer to as the E.T. Enlightenment myth. It's this imaginative story, a worldview shaping story that guides the way people think. And there really is very little critical thinking in, in these stories. And so I uh, kind of take the lid off this in my book, Unbelievable, to show how scientists are storytellers, Lucas. And mm. often they do it in the name of science. But when you look at the details, the arguments just are not convincing.
Uh, so I think that if there were an alleged appearance of some creature in the future that looks supernatural, I think it's an open question. I would take it on a case-by-case basis. What is the evidence that it's supernatural? What is the evidence that's natural? I'm open to either interpretation, but these this ET enlightenment myth is kind of dumbing down a lot of people into just uh, because they imagine future technology being so great that it would actually erode critical thinking skills. And that's what my book is trying to prevent, is to try to get people to think critically about this and not just accept, well, Richard Dawkins said this, so so whatever creature might appear, I'm just going to call it a space alien, and it might unite humanity and solve human problems. So so essentially you're saying this this story, how about this, this story with Bob Lazar, do you, do you think mm-hmm. it's credible? Do you think it's, well, maybe he was actually working on just government technology that's, or do you think that there has been contact with alien? I mean, apparently you're saying you don't think so because it's so far, right. like they're so far removed. So then how do you, do you just then dismiss his story as being um, just, just a conspiracy theory? Well, conspiracy theories, um, are typically rate very low on this list of uh, features of good theories. Uh, they're not very testable. They're not really open to public um, examination. Is although eventually they will. If they make these claims, let's let's see. Okay, let's see the anti gravity machine. Let's see how it works. Let's have a team of international scientists that look at it. You know, obviously some some of this technology could p- possibly happen, but um, but uh, whether aliens have actually visited us, um, you know. I'm open-minded either way, but given what I know from science and the science of astronomy in particular and about the conditions that, that are needed for habitability, I think it's that, that more ordinary explanations are much more likely than the extraordinary thing of an alien coming to this planet and having technology that looks like a miracle. So, so then you, you're making this argument that, and you laid out in your book, that, that our textbooks are being rewritten to um, essentially counter, not counterfeit, to essentially work back into science and history, this this idea that aliens could possibly exist, this idea, laying this this framework of spirituality mm-hmm. in an in a naturalistic worldview, and and so my my question is, why do you why do you think that they're writing this in? And what is their motivation behind it? Why do you think that they're writing yeah. this into the textbooks? Yeah, I, I cite a number of textbooks, astronomy textbooks used in college courses. And I taught uh, astronomy and biology for a quarter century to college students. So I, I know the kind of genre that we're talking about here of science textbooks used by college students. And I cite a, num- a number of these that say, you know, you know, contact with aliens would completely revise religions on Earth. Uh, it would, it would, it would be the death blow to mm. traditional religion. And I, you know, again, I'm saying, look, traditional tr- Christianity was open to the possibility of aliens, but it's also when you combine that with contemporary scientific knowledge, and I deal with both in my book. Um, what these textbooks are setting people up for is, oh well. If there's any creature that looks supernatural, of course it's only an alien, and they may, uh, you know, help us to overcome old religious views that were mm. allegedly anti-science. But when you look at the real history of science, Christianity, uh, and the, in the entire Judeo-Christian tradition, 
uh, as, as, uh, as well as some other religions, have had a positive influence on science. I mean, the, the best argument is particularly the Christian tradition, because that's in, in Europe, Christianity was the dominant cultural matrix for the way people thought about God and, and nature. And the idea that there, is a, uh, that, that there is a maximally rational creature, God, who made the world and also made humans, that gives confidence that people could actually know the world and discover the natural laws that work and therefore be more less likely to be tricked by people who just extrapolate wildly into, well, given enough time, any technology can be, can look like, uh, can, can do things that would, would look supernatural to us even today. And I think that the problem is uh, people just who, the students who read these textbooks are going to be thinking, oh, religion is anti-science. But this new scientific way of imagining the future world is going to replace religion. It's going to replace, rather than uh, a Messiah coming back to Earth, it will be E.T. coming back to save us. So it's, it's kind of a new salvation story that's supposedly science-based when it's really pseudoscientific, in my opinion. Right. And you, and you say in your book how Ray Kurzweil says that, that the technology, when E.T. comes, when you know, AI singularity appears that the magic will be magic that resembles Harry Potter. And you lay out, and I've heard you on, on different episodes, different articles, you're writing and you lay out how they're really, all these UFO abduction stories, they they mirror um, occultic activity. They mirror, um, yeah, what we would in, you know, the Christian framework call demonic activity. Um, Mm-hmm. And I agree with that. I think that's probably where my my view lies as well. But I've been thinking about this question and what would a what would an atheist or a, a scientist who believes in the ET enlightenment what would they say to that? And I, my thought is well wouldn't they flip that back around on us and say well if you read Ezekiel and you have a wheel within the wheel and if you read the book of Enoch and how you know these these creatures gave technology to man and they would say well in your framework you call them demons when in reality they are extraterrestrial beings that have made contact and you know on it goes what like wouldn't yeah. that be the the logical argument that would that would be able to stand yeah i mean the, there's a whole series of uh documentary you know shows on the history channel and various other uh, travel channel on ancient aliens and, you know, look at artifacts and, hey, this one looks like an astronaut and stuff like that. There's really flimsy arguments. And again, I'm an expert on what counts for a good theory, both in the sciences, but also I do this in history. So the ancient alien thesis is that, well, supposedly supernatural stuff in the past was just aliens visiting us or giving us and showing right. us technology that looked magical. Right. Um, and I just think that the, given the scientific knowledge we now have, the likelihood of alien contact, again, is so, so low. And then plus, there, there's a lot of imaginative storytelling that goes into these ancient alien theses that it's like you could take almost any artifact and, and, and associate it with, oh, well, see that, that, that circular shape over there? That could be a flying saucer. And it's, when it's, <laughs> you know, this, this speculation just can, can go on endlessly, and I find it very unconvincing. So, so you're saying it's, it's speculation, and they are trying to, naturalists and materialists are, are trying to 
um, rationalize phenomenon that are happening in the spirit realm because of things that are not of natural occurrence, but of spiritual occurrence that they cannot rationalize within their materialistic framework and evolutionary framework. And right. so because of that, they have to modify their worldview and their framework to fit this narrative so that they can have a consistent way of viewing and living in the world. But from, you know, those from a Judeo-Christian worldview, we would look at that and say, well, that is the the spirit realm that, that of course, is there. Um, is that what's happening? Is that even why this is being being birthed and brought into the forefront of culture in the first place? Well, it's hard to know, you know, the personal motivations of, you know, atheist Richard Dawkins or the famous skeptic Michael Shermer, who was in head of the Skeptic Society, who said any sufficiently advanced extraterrestrial intelligence is indistinguishable from God. Again, they're saying themselves, there's no way to distinguish anymore, given their imaginative story of advanced technology from aliens to distinguish between the natural and the supernatural. Well, that gives them kind of a uh, the ability to, no matter, even if the devil himself appeared on this planet posing as an alien savior, savior it doesn't matter what kind of supernatural things this bad alien, or excuse me, this bad spiritual being could do, the atheists are still going to say, well, see, given enough time, science could, could and technology could do that. We don't have that yet, but maybe they do. So it, it just leaves people wide open to, you know, given that I think that there's good historical evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And if that's the case, and Jesus underwrites, you know, the, the historicity of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there will be a, a day, maybe not in our lifetime, but there will be a day when there will be radical claims of a new uh, savior for the world that won't be uh, Jesus. It will be some other creature, maybe posing as an alien, but actually a spiritual being, uh, a demon or Satan himself. So I think that, that again, I, any claim of a creature to be able to do amazing things and solve world problems and bring world peace, I would evaluate on a case-by-case basis. I would look at all the evidence, look at all the possibilities, natural and supernatural. And I just think the atheists have set us up to be uncritical about this by saying, well, of course there is no God. Those Christians have always been holding back science, which is not true, as my book shows. Christianity was very important for the growth of science. And religion, um, traditional religion is consistent with science. And it's people from my perspective that I think would be much more critical thinkers than the atheists if there were to be such an appearance event of something that looks supernatural and people are debating, is it alien or is it demonic? So why, you know, going back to El Tamash's question, why is there in, in today's time, why is there such a, a feud between religion and science? Why is that just something commonplace that we all believe? Yeah, well, you know, I'm, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I'm a fellow of Discovery Institute. And if you go to discovery.org, you look at the resources there, including a link to uh, what, uh, a, a companion website called Evolution News and Science Today. Uh, you can keep up to date with uh, anywhere in the world through uh, especially Evolution News and, and Science Today, which is, presents evidence critical of the Darwinian materialistic story uh, and shows that current science of, you know, the uh, sort of we're in the information age and the information encoded in DNA it really speaks to an intelligent designer, not to an unguided material process. And so 
science and religion uh, really are compatible, um, I think, and there's good scientific evidence to show that. Um, but the the atheists and agnostics who want to, uh, for whatever reasons, political, ideological, who want to marginalize uh, traditional religious thinkers, they try to paint them as always anti-science. But many leading scientists are believers in God. In fact, roughly half of American scientists believe in God. The other half doesn't. And that statistic really hasn't changed much in the last century. So it's just a myth that science and religion are always at war. And that's really the main point of my book, Unbelievable. It's these stories told by atheists about the history of science that are themselves myths. And then I also explain the futuristic myth that we've already discussed about E.T. But these are myths that try to make you know, anyone who is a traditional religious believer to look anti-science when that's really not the case at all. You also mentioned in your book that 35% of those, at least in America, age 18 to 29, put down none as their religion, but then go on to say that they are spiritual. Can You're, mm-hmm. you know, a professor of philosophy. Um, what What is going on here? And what is, you know, what would your concern be and it, is this kind of all part of that, that people are just trying to rewrite a moral code, trying to strip um, humans of their uh, the value, the intrinsic value of a human life? Or why, why do you think this is happening? Well, traditional um, atheism has tried to say, well, any spiritual inclination you might have is just an illusion. It's, there's nothing real about it. But... Um, more and more, there is a, a tendency for the younger generation to say, you know, even if the materialist worldview is true, I yearn for something greater than mm-hmm. just just me being a material object. <clears throat> and it seems like we have a very strong intuition that there is something more to us than just a material being. Because, in fact, over the course of your lifetime, the material parts of your body are lost, largely lost and replaced by other material parts in the course of your lifetime. So, that itself seems to suggest we're not just a material thing, that there's something that we're both material and non-material. There's a spiritual aspect to us. So, so a lot of people want to connect with that spirituality. And so uh, it's interesting that, that a lot of science-educated people who don't believe in traditional religion are experimenting with the occult, with uh, tarot cards and with uh, astrology and with all this weird stuff, which I think there's very little basis for that, any of that being really legitimate. Um, but uh, there's that longing in the human heart to have significance, which is a, in tune with something real, that, that there is something to us that's more than just the material. Uh, just that they're, they're going, they're looking for love in all the wrong places, Lucas. Mm. So, you, so, and I, I see what you're saying. You know, we have this yearning in us. I think innately we realize that we're spiritual beings, even those, you know, uh, even those in America that are so kind of materialistic or atheists seem to have uh, walk around with a lot of superstition. Um, and so it seems like there's this dichotomy, you know, between their right brain, left brain, whatever you want to call it, of of the the ideologies that they believe as far as Darwinism. But then at the, in the same breath, they are living out under uh, this superstitious um, spirit realm kind of worldview, which mm-hmm. is in some ways very con- confusing to me. 
Yeah, and you know, some of this occultic activity overlaps with our earlier conversation about ET, because some argue, well, maybe ET's already been here, and some of these so-called occultic spiritual experiences are a contact with aliens who come in forms that we're not familiar with. And um, and you know, I haven't studied the uh, ET abductions story literature much, but I'm I'm familiar with. There's a huge literature on that, and some of those. Uh, it's, uh, it's really shocking that a, a, a large percentage of those stories are very sexually oriented. There's the abductions and sexual activity alleged in, in many of the, and again, I, I, I'm not going to judge the, uh, the validity of any one account. I, I'm just saying there's the literature, a large literature of this. Right. And, and uh, I, as coming from a Christian perspective, I am a, uh, a, a believer in Jesus Christ and a follower, but I, but I, I, I look at every topic from a rational and scientific view as well. And I think the two come together to show that a lot of these abduction stories might actually be encounters with demons rather than aliens. Um, and again, given the scientific evidence and given what I know about the history of, of uh, humans in, in the spiritual realm, there have, there have been, uh, I mean, Jesus himself, claim to deliver people from demons. And, and, you know, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then demons mm. actually exist. It's not just mm. a fairy tale. That, that leads me into my next question. And I, I want to ask you about, about that, that our, our natural bodies um, and physical ailments that seem that might, might actually come from hexes, witchcraft. Um, these are things that, goodness, when I talk to people, they, they come up all the time. But before we answer that question. We're out of time for part one of this two-part episodes, but we are going to continue this conversation right over into the next episode where we we talk about the spirit realm, we talk about the natural realm, we talk about how those two fit together, and we talk about how our thoughts have positive or negative consequences, which then it his his takeaway, my word, you want to hear his three points. He has three takeaways at the end for how them how we can take this information and actually apply it to our personal life so that we don't fall into some of the traps that we begin to talk about in the coming episode. If you have a question that you would like to get answered here on the show, please WhatsApp me at plus one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero. I would love to hear from you and answer your question right here on the show. Also, this is the perfect time to get my book, Anchored the Discipline to Stop Drifting. I wrote this book in a time where everything was falling in my life. I had these great metrics and systems of how I was going to be so successful. And I woke up one day to find out that I was just busy, not fruitful, not successful. And my I just felt so stuck. So out of that place, I wrote this book, Anchored the Discipline to Stop Drifting. And it is a simple 100-page, highly actionable, story-driven book that will help you focus your life. It will help you focus your life to begin to take steps forward, to get unstuck, and to begin to take action on your dreams so that you can fulfill your destiny because your time is your destiny. Anyways, that is all for this episode. Please roll over to the next episode and I will see you there.